0: Well, our scripture uh, for the sermon tonight comes from Second Corinthians chapter six, verses fourteen through seven one. So, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter six, verses fourteen through seven one, it's also printed in your bulletin. So here now, the active living word of the Lord. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is God's word. Pray with me. Most gracious God and heavenly Father, you are holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. You are pure light, and in you is no darkness at all. You've called us to be holy as you are holy. Give us greater understanding of what this calling means for our lives. Give us wisdom and discernment about separating ourselves from sin and corrupting influences around us. Teach us, Lord Jesus, through your word, what it looks like for us to be in the world as temples of the living God. Refresh us and sanctify us, Holy Spirit, in your truth as your word is truth. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Well, as Kent Hughes recounts in his insightful commentary on St. Corinthians, the year was 1933, and it happened to be Martin Luther's 450th birthday. The place was Berlin, Germany where threatening storm clouds were gathering before the darkest moment of the 20th century. A massive gathering of 20,000 Christians gathered under the umbrella of the German Evangelical Church. Led by bishops and church officials in full regalia, the gathering bellowed out, Now thank we all our God, with a fanfare of trumpets. Then came the announcements that the Bible was to be reexamined for all its non-German elements. Worst of all, it was announced that a proud, heroic Jesus must replace the model of the suffering servant. Instead of a debate, the speeches were interrupted over and over by applause. Pitifully, not one bishop or church leader took a vocal stand in opposition. The state church had shamefully succumbed to the onslaught of German higher criticism and the liberal theologians. Instead of the courage of Martin Luther, the German church was full of cowardly compromise with the culture and the growing Nazi movement. It's one of the most dramatic demonstrations in history of the sobering reality that the greatest danger to the church comes from within, not without. Yes, the greatest danger of the church comes from within its own ranks, not from its enemies beyond. Today we have a church in America showing much of the same cowardly compromise and theological corruption, much of which stems from gross biblical ignorance and man-centered interpretation. Instead of being salt and light, many churches have ceased to look any different from the surrounding culture. And this is where we find the opening command of our text landing directly in the midst of our cultural moment. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Paul says. His five rhetorical questions that follow drive home this point. As temples of the living God, we must not be inappropriately connected to corrupting influences around us. You know, it's striking that Paul could have written this exhortation to the church in America just last week. Its hard-hitting relevance is stunning. Friends, the main point of the message tonight is this. As temples of the living God, we are called to holiness. As temples of the living God, we are called to holiness. That's the big idea that we'll be exploring. And I have two supporting points to draw this out. First, separating from falsehood, we must dwell in the truth. Second, dwelling in the truth, we strive for holiness. Well, let's begin by setting some context and dealing with a couple of questions that may arise at the outset when you take a look at this text. First, this opening verse about being unequally yoked is often used as a proof text for the prohibition of marrying a non-believer. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Though looking at the whole counsel of God, we know that marrying an unbeliever is unbiblical. We know that. But Paul's context here are the false apostles and teachers that he mentions elsewhere in his letters to the Corinthians. Now, other commentators believe that unbelievers refer to the non-believing, Christian, or non-believing Gentiles rather involved in a dark, cultic life there in Corinth. But either way, the application for us is the same, and we'll get into that shortly. Now the second thing I want to briefly mention relates to Paul's use of the Old Testament here in verses 16 through 18. This is quite impressive, as he draws from six different Old Testament texts to craft this summary of God's promises and commands. This use of the Old Testament was a common Pharisee practice of putting together various scriptures to prove a point. So that's, that's what Paul's doing here. All right, with those things in mind, let's dive into our first point. Separating from falsehood, we must dwell in the truth. Separating from falsehood, we must dwell in the truth. Let's look back again at verses 14 through 16. Paul makes an imperative statement and then drives home the point by asking five questions. Now, it's clear that the spheres Paul mentions here are mutually exclusive. And the rhythmic drumming of these questions really serves to drive home the main point that there is no compatibility of the people or ways of God with the people and the ways aligned with godlessness. Paul wants the Corinthians to put a stop to relating to unbelievers inappropriately, and even more specifically, relating with his opponents. For he later says they preach another Jesus and another gospel. And just a quick note here on this name, Baliel, that we see in, in verse sixteen or verse 15. This is actually a name for Satan used in the Judaism of Paul's day, and often in contexts that stress Satan's activity as an opponent of God. So it fits Paul's context here well. Now another question that may arise here is whether Paul is saying that we should have no association at all with unbelievers. Well, this is clearly not the case in light of the whole counsel of God. Many examples could be noted, especially in the life of Jesus. Paul is not wanting them to cut off all association with unbelievers. The problem stems from the Corinthians adopting the moral standards of the pagan world around them. Their affections have been corrupted, morally corrupted, and their sin affecting, is affecting their relationship with God and with Paul himself. So the application for us, dear friends, is that we must not allow ourselves to be corrupted by false teachers and unbelievers. This is because our dwelling place is with a holy God in whom there is no darkness at all. We must cleanse ourselves from sinful relationships that influence us and affect our relationship with God. Now, this takes us to the profound statement in verse 16 where Paul says that we are the temple of the living God. Now, is he talking about us individually as Christians or the church as a whole? Well, it's actually both. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, Paul tells the Corinthians, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. And then in 1 Peter 2.5, Peter says that we are like living stones chosen by God, being built up as a spiritual house. Just ponder this reality for a moment, dear friends. The Corinthians and all who are in Christ are now the temple of the living God. This is a stunning statement. I mean, consider the context of the Corinthian believers, where temples to false gods were pervasive everywhere. Think about it. And now they're being told, you are the temple. I mean, this is absolutely mind-boggling, not only for them, but for us today. Now, it's important to note also that he says, we are the temple, not we will be in the future. In the Old Testament, the dwelling place of God was with his people. Or it was the tabernacle, right? It was the tabernacle, and then, of course, it was the temple, right? And when Christ came, he became the true temple, or dwelling place of God. And we see this in passages like Matthew 1, 23, John 2, 21, and Colossians 2, 9. Now, God the Holy Spirit lives in us, and for this reason, we are the new end-time temple of God, both individually and corporately. You see, our justification is effective now. Our sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ, is happening now, and it's ongoing. This truth should empower us to live with joyful confidence in the face of a dark and aggressive world. God's life-giving, sanctifying spirit lives in us, lives inside us. Let us pause. Let us pause and prayerfully ask ourselves, how are we living out this reality each day? Are we allowing our relationships and influences to neutralize our effective witness for Christ? Let us remember that our church, both in regard to individual members and to our life together, is the place of God's presence in the world. Now we should also consider Christ in light of these questions from Paul. What fellowship has light with darkness? As the light of the world, Christ took on the darkness of our sin and guilt so that we could have the light of life. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And what accord has Christ with Baliel, with Satan himself? None. Christ, the Lord of life, has conquered him and sentenced him to eternal death. Christ is our victorious king who has defeated Satan, sin, and death through his own death and glorious resurrection. And Christ is the fulfillment of, these, of this Old Testament promise seen here uh, throughout the Old Testament and noted here in verse 16. Jesus is the one who came to dwell among God's people, to walk among them, to be their God. And Christ, he is our mediator, making this relationship with God possible. It is through Christ that we become sons and daughters of the living God. Verse 18. Let us ponder this glorious reality that is true today, friends. Separating from falsehood, we must dwell in the truth. We are temples of the living God, and we are called to holiness. Which leads us to our second and final point, dwelling in the truth, we strive for holiness. Dwelling in the truth, we strive for holiness. Look back at verse 17 through 7-1. Now what's interesting, but perhaps easy to miss about the inclusion of these Old Testament promises, is that Paul is applying them to the Corinthians, even though they were originally given to Israel. This shows his conviction that the church is the fulfillment of God's covenant people being restored under the new covenant. These promises from God for intimacy and adoption are for all those who have been delivered and restored through Christ, who is the new covenant. Christ is the new covenant. You and I, dear friends, are full beneficiaries and heirs of this new covenant, which brings with it incredible blessings. Therefore... Dwelling in the truth, which is Christ, we should be compelled to pursue separation from sin while striving for holiness. So, Paul's point here is clear. Having been adopted, the Corinthians are heirs of all the promises of the covenant, and so they must, they must separate themselves from impurity. As stated earlier, the greatest threat to the church comes from within. This is why it's so devastating when a church fails to exercise church discipline. When it fails to call sin, sin. When it looks the other way and rationalizes away a sinful lifestyle, a pattern of sin, a compromise with the world, and an effort to be more loving. Yet it's a sad irony that this is the most unloving thing we can do because sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. If we aren't marking out sin and working to mortify it from our body, what chance do we have to be salt and light to a dying world who is perishing in their sins. You know, one of the doctrines that arises from this text is the nature of sin and its devastating effects. It separates us from God, who is holy. It reminds us how serious sin is and how important it is that we not only separate from its corrupting influence, but to also mortify the sin within us through a life of repentance. In fact, the aim of this entire section of text is really captured in this final phrase of 7-1. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I love that phrase. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It is out of reverent love of God that we strive for holiness. But some of you may be asking, what does he mean by bringing holiness to completion? Can we become completely holy? Well, surely not in this lifetime. But the pursuit of, the pursuit of holiness involves the ongoing purification of all aspects of life, physical and spiritual, everything that impacts the believer's life. And this demand for holiness, it's fearful. It's a fearful demand. As Paul notes in chapter 5, verse 10 of this letter, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So knowing this fear, we must work at bringing holiness Completion. Now, it's also important to recognize that what Paul is imploring the Corinthians to do is to embrace the reality of who they are now, but I think he's also pointing them forward to who they will be in the new heavens and the new earth—saints who are perfected in holiness and completely separate from sin, darkness, and Satan himself. It's who we are now as heirs of the new covenant, and will be to a fuller complete sense in our final glorified state. And we know from Matthew 13, 49 and Matthew 25, 32, that at the end of the age, God himself will separate out evil from the righteousness or from the righteous as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. So these promises, which God will fulfill completely and precisely, they serve to motivate us. When we long for God's presence... When we deeply desire a right relationship with him as sons and daughters, we lay a foundation for holy living. The imperative rests on the indicative. Now something else interesting to note here about verse 7:1, Paul refers to his hearers as beloved, or dear ones, as some translations have it. As one commentator brings out, this points out his love for them, despite their many failures, but, he also, but it also has many important, an important theological overtone. And that is that the Corinthians are not loved because of some stellar behavior, but rather because they are God's loved covenant people. And so are we, dear ones. So are we. Let us never forget. These are promises of what God is doing and will do. These are not just maybes. They're not just possibilities. They are permanent realities that were lost in the garden, but are being made new and and through Christ, the new covenant. Dwelling in the truth, in Christ, we strive for holiness. The alternative is sobering. I like how one commentator put it. He said, holiness of life stems from reverent reflections on the devastating gravity of being out of step with God's will. You see, it's vital to understand what it means to live as one who fears the Lord. Countless scriptures affirm this. Consider just one from Psalm 25, verse 12 through 14. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. And this covenant, we now know, is Christ but instead of fearing the lord and his holiness many churches today have bowed to the sexual revolution they have surrendered the unchanging truth of god and his design for human sexuality to the false god of this world claiming tolerance and a redefinition of love sexuality and the family like the church in germany of the 1930s they have replaced courage and conviction with cowardice and compromise this is tragic And it should grieve us deeply, but it should also humble us. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we may pride ourselves in properly recognizing and distancing ourselves from the sexual revolution and its many outrageous falsehoods, and that this dangerous pride may blind us to other sinful influences. Case in point. Have we conquered the ugly beast of pornography? With the sobering data on such widespread use of pornography by people in the church, I dare say this must be addressed. Light cannot mix with darkness. Sexual purity, whether married or single, cannot coexist with the poison of porn. Brothers and sisters, we must slay this behemoth of wickedness that utterly destroys everything in its path. We are the temples of the living God. Far be it from us to allow such grotesque idolatry and sexual sin to defile our lives, our relationships, and our faithful Christian witness. Let me close with some final thoughts on application. God implores us, be holy as I am holy. These glorious promises of God from our text should rocket us towards a life of running after holiness. The scriptures are full of instructions on living faithfully as heirs of the new covenant. In this pursuit, we must feast on this rich food in places like Romans 12 through 15, Ephesians 4 through 6, and the entire book of James, just to name a few. As we strive for holiness, we often grow weary in the battle, don't we? Are you weary this night, dear ones? Are you weary? Well, let us remember and be refreshed with the glorious truth from chapter 1, verse 20 of this letter. Paul writes, for all the promises of God are yes in Christ. And so through him, our amen is spoken to the glory of God. You see, we must remember, friends, that Christ makes it possible for us to obey this command to cleanse ourselves. He became defiled with our sin so that we could be cleansed and be free from the curse of the law. This freedom empowers us to be able to strive for holiness, to labor with him in the lifelong process of bringing holiness to completion, in the fear of God. So let us dwell in the truth, the truth of Christ, as temples of the living God, called to holiness. Pray with me.